I want to thank you all for gifts, letters, um, gods. I'm building a giant healing altar onto which all these things are going. So they have all been kept. And they're all gathered. It's a lot to be here. And you you may not identify each other, but there's a whole lot of people from Union here today. So I feel like two families have come together in a big way. Um, thank you all for coming. You know, what I want to talk about today, I'll get to in a minute, but I'm doing okay. Some of you have heard from me, some of you haven't. Um, for those of you who do not, does everyone know what's going on? I don't know if everyone knows what's going on. Cancer diagnosis, kind of intense. Um, and it's had an effect on communities around. And I take seriously this mandate from the Buddha that we don't hide death and that we don't hide illness and that the um and that we sit on the charnel grounds and that we attend to what's in front of us because our society's habit of not doing that has made us insane and the only way to be sane spiritually is to be nose to nose with death how i'm feeling is there doesn't seem to be a lot of fear and anxiety. There does seem to be a considerable amount of grief and overwhelm. Um, grief in the sense that there will pro likely be damage from the treatment, and I don't know what it is. So those of you who have gone through cancer treatment know what I mean um, and the medical system's overwhelming and it takes kind of all your patience and at the end of the day <laughs> I don't have a lot to be honest um, and the thing I want to talk about today in terms of the Dharma is don't for us not to let a good prognosis lull us back into delusion. Good prognosis is just a delay. There is um, there's no good prognosis for life, and um, and it matters that we keep that close. When I'm sitting in um, the waiting room, it's a head and neck specialty floor. Head and neck cancer is very, very public in the sense that when it's advanced and they start removing things, you see it. And so there are people in the room with me who are missing a quarter of their face 
And, um, and they're waiting, just like I'm waiting to see someone. Their voices are gone. They have almost no ability to talk. I hear them in the room next to me struggling just to get out a sentence to tell their oncologist what's going on for them. I am not in that situation, so that's good news. But when we're sitting there and we're looking, you know, if you've been in a, if you've been someone with cancer in a cancer ward or been someone with a serious illness in a war, in a unit with other people with that, you're looking at each other differently. You're not, it doesn't matter where, I mean, <laughs> all the things that matter stop mattering. And you and and how people are looking into each other's eyes is different. Because we're looking into each other's eyes with the recognition that death is there. That this is someone who it might be or is dying. Which of course is always the case. It's just we pretend it isn't. We fall back into this idea that it, that is not what's going on, that we're not looking into the eyes of the dying every time we're looking into the eyes of someone. If you recall back, maybe when you first found out this news or you found out this news about someone else in your family or whatever it is, what comes up in those moments, usually, probably a pushing away, probably initial some initial stage of grief. But oh, it also seems to come up, at least in my experience of all of you, is also love and gratitude. A tremendous amount of love and gratitude comes up. And the same is true when we remember the death in people's eyes. When we look at each other, no matter who it is, no matter who it is, no matter the situation, and we know we are sitting in a waiting room with them. We are always sitting in a waiting room with them. Whatever we feel about that person, whatever is going on, that is underneath it all, that is what's happening. Human beings forget that, and then we turn our society upside down, and become really stupid. Trungpa used to always make the quote, Tibetan teacher Trungpa, he used to always say things like, all neurosis arises from fear of death. I think that's probably pretty true. And when there's something in our life, whether it be sickness or someone else's illness or somebody else who might have psychological issues that puts them in danger and they're close to us, whatever it is, or, or there's a prison system that has swallowed them up. Or there's just the mass violence against so many people. When that's in our face and we can't walk away from it, 
we can't turn away from it, then there is something that has to happen, something we have to work with, something that is, because it's not going anywhere. Death is not going anywhere. So it was interesting to hear people, and this is not a critique, it just was an interesting thing for me to explore when I would hear people say, oh, I'm so relieved by the prognosis. That was an interesting moment because I wasn't particularly relieved. <laughs> I wasn't relieved at all. Nothing in, has changed. Right? So, because the fear of death was not the thing that was up for me. The thing that was up for me was the grief of my body. That was the thing that was present. That was the thing that was in front. So the change in news didn't really change anything for me. Although I would like to live longer. No question. I'm happy. And then it started me thinking about, you know, I have this thing about liking this whole bodhisattva path. I think it's pretty good. And um, I started thinking about the bodhisattva path and I started thinking about relief. And then I had the thought that bodhisattvas never get to be relieved. Bodhisattvas find ways of having ease, of having capacity, of knowing when they need to rest so that they can return, but never relief. We're never relieved. Because as soon as we stop creating the suffering for ourselves, then what comes rushing in is the suffering of everyone else. No relief. So then we have to ask deep spiritual questions in our zazen practice. What is it to live a compassionate life of no relief? What is necessary to live a compassionate life of no relief? Which means that we have to really care for ourselves in a profound way. It's like, what's going to happen in the next few weeks for me? I'm going to have to care for myself in a really deep way, but there's not going to be any relief. It's just going to be care. It moves it moves the way we understand what the spiritual path is about. Because I think most of us come in wanting relief. We want some due date. When this is all going to come in and then it's going to stop. And then sometimes people realize that's not going to be the case and they go. Sometimes they realize it's not going to be the case and they're discouraged. They need support from people who've been around a little longer. They need, more, they need to sit and find ground. Find the stability of that because when that capacity is there, when that stability is there, when the heart breaks for ourselves enough times, then it, then it releases. You could say builds the capacity. That's one way of saying it. You could also say just releases the capacity that's there. 
Because once we're not grasping onto ourselves, it releases a tremendous amount of energy. It releases the ability to be with suffering that is not ours. And we no longer have to find relief from it. Because the capacity building, it's why we're sitting meditation, it's why we do what we do, is to build capacity, to release capacity, to free ourselves from self-attachment in such a way that we are available for the suffering of the world. And we don't actually need relief from it. It doesn't mean we don't need rest. We don't need care. We don't need attention. We're not martyrs running ourselves into the ground. It won't be very helpful. And it's not all that free, that persona. We usually end up resentful and not liking the people we're trying to support. <laughs> but the thing about what practicing, you know, Buddhism puts a really big emphasis. The Zen school does, certainly the Tibetan schools do, and the Buddha mentioned it a few times himself that um, we have to stay with death. We have to stay there. We have to stay right up against it. And if we can stay right up against it with our hearts, it's going to be tough. It's going to burn up a lot of anxiety. It's going to be a lot of things that we don't want to feel. Everything that wants to survive. You know, we talk about impermanence. I don't even, in some ways, I just want to say death. Because impermanence is like, oh yeah, everything's impermanent. I can just do this impermanence thing. Where I, I know everything's impermanent. No, you're going to die. The people next to you are going to die. Milo and Molly are going to live two to five years. Period. Unless they pull off some miraculous dog reality, they have two to five years to live. That's that fast. They'll be gone. And to stay with that, and we can even feel there's, there might be some resistance at that proposal, but there's also something where you can feel your heart start to get engaged. When we start talking about being truthful about death, suddenly the heart starts to go, and you start to feel it. It wakes up the heart because your body starts to go, okay, what has the capacity to deal with this? Well, this is the thing that has the capacity to deal with this. This is what has the capacity to deal with it. This is kind of the only thing that has the capacity to deal with it. And we don't, um, we say this all the time, you know, the center of the mind for Buddhism is here. This is the thing that has to be released so that the world can be met.
So bodhisattvas, nose to nose with death, has a few, a few things happen. One is, it is a really good way to erode self-attachment. It's pretty effective, right? Because especially in, in often you'll hear in, 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 in Zen texts this idea that really, or suggestion, that really the only death is the ego death. After that, it's not a big deal. Right, because the thing that you think death is, that is so terrible, is a return of the body. The body is of the earth completely now. The body is of the earth completely then. We will feel pain in the transition. I'm not making light of that. We love each other, and so we'll feel grief. But we're everything now. We're already everything located we're already the cosmos located and yoko's the cosmos located there and renho's the cosmos located there and we're swirling in and out of each other constantly swirling in and out of each other leaving imprints leaving light in each other leaving joy in each other leaving wisdom in each other. And so when the body goes, the body goes. And Molly's really attentive right now. <laughs> um, But the death of the self, that is interestingly terrifying no matter when it happens. Like whether it happens close to death or whether it happens right now or in the next Zazen period or during Rahatsu when you all, you're sitting, there is, a, there is the leading up to that dro like dropping away of separation, not grasping separation, allowing that to dissolve. The time before that is scary. And we'll fight. That's where the fight is. The fight of physical death is the fight of ego death. If the fight of ego death is over, then we can die. And if the fight of ego death is over and we can die, we can also be completely present for other people's suffering. And the relentlessness of suffering, the not going away of it, the dropping the idea that it needs to have an end date, that we're not going to be able to do it unless it has an end date. And we're going to be discouraged every time we realize it. Once again, it doesn't have an end date. And we become hopeless when it doesn't have an end date. So to begin to feel into, which I feel everybody here is doing, to feel into staying awake. Staying awake that this is the world, that we are sitting in a waiting room. 
and we have to engage the fact that there are people immediately across from us that are suffering. And we have to do something about that. We stand up and do something about that. You know, and the bodhisattvas are not looking to be relieved. There are, we're not relieved when we get to stop thinking about it. Someone may remind us of the fact that we have arguably the most vicious prison system in the world, at least the biggest. And we get to maybe not think about that, and maybe that's relieving. But I'm not sure bodhisattvas get to be relieved of that. I'm not sure we get to be relieved when we go home and we can stop thinking about the effects of misogyny in the world. I don't think we get to... And some people simply cannot be relieved from that. Some people simply cannot be relieved from the violence of racism. Some people think they can be. It's the same of being on the cancer side of the veil and the non-cancer side of the veil. Some people get to be relieved. Other people do not get to be relieved. Right, So if we're in the group of people who have the luxury, the luxury off-ramp of getting relieved, not if we're bodhisattvas, we don't. Our vow is that we do not get to be relieved. And we return to it. Does that require rest? Yes, it's an immense violence. that is not awake, is objectifying everyone. Even the medical system. He says, I've said to Laura and others, it's like the amount of times I was prodded and poked and jabbed in one day as if it was normal. Like, it's just what we do. We're just, now we're going to stick this tube down your nose all the way. And we're going to do that five times. <laughs> okay, we're done. You know, and and then we're gonna, you know, when they do a biopsy of a lymph node in your neck, they stick the needle in, they don't just stick it in, they go like this about 20 times. <laughs> so they get enough cells. The the reason I bring that up is because when I went for an MRI the other morning, it was early in the morning, seven o'clock, and I went into the bathroom. And my body, I'm, I now refer to as hara sobbing. It just comes up from my hara, and I just sob for like 20 seconds. And it's because my body is going through this violence. And even though there's equanimity, you know, it's like, okay, this is fine. I have patience, and I've been practicing a long time, and it's all fine. It doesn't change a damn thing about what my body's going through. It, my body is still going through this. And, and so equanimity and compassion and loving kindness and all the things that we build are not so that we have some lack of experience. It frees our body to be what our body is. It frees our body to harasab. It frees our body to grieve. When I first read the, um, the folks at Union have heard this and some others, when I first read 
I read when I had cancer. I didn't hear it from a doctor. They just send you these things and you see it directly now. So I read malignancy and metastasis and my body instantly just broke into sobbing for like three or four full minutes. And it moved everything through. And then my mind went, okay, you're now someone with cancer. If we are awake, that will be our response to racism. If we are awake, that will be our response to misogyny. If we are awake, that will be our response to prisons. If we are awake, that will be our response to the fact that children and families are not eating. If we are awake, our bodies will feel appropriate feelings for what is happening in the world. We won't go off into some other place. Those are the bodies we're cultivating here. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh learned. After all the violence that this country did in his country, not just this country, but this country too, did in his country, somehow he became clear that bodies needed to be able to feel. That they couldn't feel the war, that Americans couldn't feel the war, they couldn't hear the war, they couldn't, they couldn't, it took a monk setting himself on fire. It took a photo of a little girl running from a napalm blast. It took something that massive for people to feel. And there was something brilliant in his response. He's like, actually, the problem is, is that we need to practice mindfulness, open the heart, and start feeling so it doesn't require people on fire to respond. And so he brought that to the whole world. And I hope those practices and this practice are being used for that sensitivity, for that deep, profound, immediate, sensual, compassionate sensitivity to how the world is moving. That every body is and it's just so incredibly precious. And if we are looking into all eyes as eyes, the eyes of a being that is dying, we will not forget that. We forget it and we get really rushed around and somebody's just in my way. I have something more important to do than this dying person. There's something more important to do than this person who's suffering in front of me. And we are under pressure. I don't want to take away that we're in this capitalist system that's got everybody under pressure. You're not somewhere right on time, people fire you. You know, there's, it's, 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 not, um, it's not a socioeconomic system set up to allow us to be the compassionate beings we are. 
And so we're always negotiating that. That's always a real life negotiation. I have to deal with this. I have to be somewhere. There's consequences for it. And when there's not, and we're fantasizing that there are, (laughs) or we have an idea of what it is to be a good person that are doing it, then, then I think it's, um, then I think maybe in that situation we say, okay, nobody's more important than the people in front of me. So for this Sangha, I'm going to hear from you all. For this Sangha, to stay awake, to stay awake, to stay awake, cultivate love, cultivate compassion, cultivate compassionate responses, actual responses to the world, the abolitionist activity that is in this Sangha. Bring it on. The anti-racist activity that has been continuous in the Sangha, bring that on. The working with patriarchy and looking at that, keep that going. The ecological work that's going and the group that is bringing that together and, and, and making that something that this Sangha is focused on, that our hearts are turned toward, keep that going. That is what's going to keep our hearts awake and in this world. Otherwise, this is a fantasy. It's just us coming here to feel good. We need to come here to wake up so that we can be in the world. That is what the world needs of us. And we need to care for each other and make sure we're not burning ourselves out. And that there is, and I'm so grateful that you guys are focusing on what rest means in this. And that rest is not separate from compassion and engagement. That we don't fall into the trap, which I have done many times, of burning myself into the ground. And I'll stop by saying I'm grateful for you all. Right now, you all, my community, is my strength. Period. There is no and in that. My community of practice is my strength right now. It is the reason that I can walk through this pretty okay. I mean, it's going to suck. Don't let me say it's going to be terrible, but pretty okay. And I feel for the people I know don't have the strength of community and what that must be like and what it must be like to be in a situation where you don't have a hundred people inside of you. I have a hundred people or more inside of me all the time. And to move like that, which is the way humans should move. We should be villages, not individuals. We should be communities, not individuals. We should move with each other inside of us, not individuals. Individuals are weak. They're weakened by that lie. So I'm grateful to every one of you and to so many people. So thank you.
May our intention penetrate Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.